All right, you've uh, got several handouts, um, and just in general, every week you'll get one that says, in a nutshell, that is a summary of what we did last week. So you'll have, end up with a summary of every, a one-page summary of each lesson, and that's what the nutshell is. So this is just a summary of the introduction we did last week. Then you will have, usually, one or two other handouts that are titled, Handout. <laughs> and generally speaking, they're numbered. Handout one, handout two, handout three. I'll number them sequentially through the course. This week, neither one of them is numbered because they're kind of extracurricular ones. Um, and, and you'll understand that as we go along. In fact, the very first handout is titled The Mountains and Hills Made Low. And I put that in because I had some questions last week, had some folks ask me, because I had quoted from Luke where he talks about John the Baptist and talks about the, the verse that says, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make the crooked places straight and the rough places plain, and all pe God's people will see salvation. Well, I had mentioned that we typically associate that verse with the first coming of Christ, but that actually that verse speaks of the second coming of Christ and the end time prophecy. And I had a number of questions from people about how did I know that and, and what was my basis for saying that? And that's what this handout addresses. And I wanted to just take a minute and go over that with you because it's, it's an important concept. Um, the, the prophecy that Luke quotes is actually from Isaiah 40. And he quotes, it's from the very first few verses of Isaiah 40. And that, Isaiah, if you look at the book of Isaiah, if you've ever studied it, Isaiah is a mixture of historical narrative and also some pro specific prophecies to specific nations like Egypt. And then, starting in chapter 40, there's a really long prophecy that runs from chapter 40 through to the end of the book, the end of Isaiah. It has some ele elements that talk about the immediate things that are going to happen under Cyrus the Great, things that will happen to Israel there. It talks a lot about the first coming of Christ. It tells about how he was going to be a suffering servant and how he's going to, you know, um, be pierced for our transgressions, etc., etc., and then it's got a ton of stuff about the end times and the theme that you can pick up if you read those that prophecy in Isaiah is you will see every time he's going to start talking about the end times he kind of mentions the rough places plain and the crooked places straight and so you'll see that theme pop up throughout those throughout those. Um, scriptures from Isaiah 40 through to the end. And so I'm not going to go through this handout in detail, but I just picked out for you some of the highlights of that prophecy that talks specifically about the end times so that, you know, if you don't feel like reading the last umpteen chapters of Isaiah, you can just read these few pages and you'll get a feel for why I am saying that the quote in Luke refers to the second coming of Christ. And the reason that that's important to us in studying Hebrews is because of the exhortation that John makes. He says, because these things are going to happen, because the God is coming and everybody's going to see the salvation of the Lord and the hills are going to made, be made flat, because of that, you need to prepare a way for the Lord. 
the prepare the way for the Lord was not just something John the Baptist was supposed to do. It's something that's applicable to us today. It is our mission today. That's why that's important. So this week, we're going to start on chapter 1. We'll probably take two weeks to do chapter 1. And um, we'll just kind of see how it times out. So the one thing you do want to do with your Bible is open it to Hebrews. You can follow along as we go. So we want to start out with Hebrews 1.1. And remember, we finished last week talking about the fact that the writer of Hebrews wrote a very logical argument. What he did was use if-then statements. He'd say, if this, and if this, and if this is true, then the conclusion has to be X, Y, Z. So we're going to go through his logical argument and look at it from the perspective of a Jew, a Christian Jew in the first century, because that's who he was talking to. In Hebrews 1, 1, he says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, that would be the Jewish ancestors, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Let's stop there. For one thing, notice that belief in God the Father is an assumption. He assumes that you know that God the Father exists and you believe him in him. You have to put on your I'm a Christian Jew hat, okay? And, and that's what you would already believe in God. Now, the second fact that every Jew would agree to is that in the past, God spoke to the Jews through prophets, right? No, no problem with that. Our problem comes in in taking off our modern eyeglasses. When we say the word prophet, we typically think it's somebody foretelling the future, right? That's what all the grocery store aisles tell us a prophet is, but... But really what a prophet is, is something different. A prophet from an Old Testament point of view is usually called to a specific task. He's, he's usually pretty limited in scope. It's almost always to deliver a message to Israel to save them from impending disaster. Every once in a while he'll, he'll, he'll give them good news. He'll usually give them a choice. He'll say, if you keep doing what you're doing, the consequences of this. If you turn around and repent, the consequences will be blessings. And I've given you in your scripture references some examples of some of the most famous prophets in Jewish history. The first one is Moses. Moses at the burning bush. The Lord said in Exodus 3 verses 7 and 10, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry before the, because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. Therefore, come now, and I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. That was Moses' calling as a prophet. That was what he was supposed That was his task, his assigned task. Isaiah... Much, much later, Isaiah was called to warn Israel of her impending destruction and her captivity in Babylon. This is in Isaiah 6, uh, first few verses. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. 
and, and the, as you know, the seraphim surround the throne of God. He flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar. This is the altar that's within the throne of God. Taken from the altar with tongues. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And I just want to pause there. If, if you have time, as you're meditating this week in your quiet time, go back and reread this section of Isaiah and what immediately preceded it. And wonder, I wonder to myself, he, he paints a picture of the throne of God with the, seraph, with the four seraphim and the altar in the center of the throne, before the throne. And he picks, the seraphim picks up this coal and he comes and he touches Isaiah's lips and says, what does he say? Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Is that altar a representation of Jesus? Think, just ponder that. That's just a question. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. <laughs> so, so this is Isaiah's call. All right? he's, he's volunteering to go to Israel. Jeremiah, another huge name in, in prophets in Israel. He, he was actually a prophet to Judah um, at, at the latter part of, the, uh, of Israel's existence back in antiquity. They had so many civil wars, they split up into two pieces. The northern part was called Israel and the southern part was called Judah. And Jer Isaiah was sent to Israel, Jeremiah was sent to Judah to warn of her impending destruction and captivity. In Jeremiah 1, first few verses, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So you see how specific the calling of these, of these prophets was? There's tons of other examples, but in each case, the Lord has a specific purpose in mind, something he urgently needs to communicate to his people. And it's almost always something that requires a change of heart and a change in action on the part of God's people. Also, God spoke to prophets in a lot of different ways. Sometimes he spoke to them in private and sometimes he spoke to them in public. Uh, Moses actually heard the Lord audibly. He heard a physical voice talking to him. In Exodus 19.9, and this is in your scripture references, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. This is, the people were already being a problem, so Moses just jumped right in reporting what was going on. But the, the, if you read in Exodus, you'll find out that although Moses heard an audible voice, he heard words, the people could only hear thunder. All they heard was rumbling, scared them to death. 
They couldn't hear the words. Ezekiel, Amos, Habakkuk, Obadiah, and many other prophets in the Old Testament saw visions. Rather than hearing an audible voice, they would see visions or they would have dreams at night. So those words are often used interchangeably. Um, For people like Joel, Zephaniah, and Zechariah, the word of the Lord just came to them. It's like it formed itself in their minds, in their consciousness. And it apparently was not audible to them. And, And in many cases, one prophet might receive the word of the Lord in different ways. You know, one time it might be a vision, another time it might be a dream, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Daniel had, was one of the ones that had dreams as well as visions. But regardless of the method that God used to talk to him, once the prophet got the word of the Lord, he was unable to hold it in. Look at Amos 3, verses 7 through 8. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to the servants, his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? What he's saying is once the Lord speaks, how can you not prophesy? And look at Jeremiah 20, verse 9. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in. I cannot. Even prophets who are corrupt have the same problem. If you read the story of Balaam back in Numbers, I think it's around Numbers 22, around in there, Balaam was a warped and crooked prophet, but the gift of prophecy was not taken away from him. The gifts of the Lord are not revocable. He doesn't take them back just because you use them inappropriately. And Balaam got in all kind of trouble with the kings that paid him to prophesy against Israel because he kept prophesying for Israel. He kept blessing them, and, and they would get mad because they were paying him to curse them. And he, his response was, I can only prophesy what the Lord puts in my mouth. I am not physically capable of doing other than that. And the message to us today, just as an aside, is our God is powerful enough to speak to you even when you're sleeping. So don't ever wonder or worry about whether you're hearing the Lord, okay? Just do your best. Be open to him, and he's the one whose responsibility it is to communicate to you. The only thing you're supposed to be responsible for is listening. And three little words. <laughs> What's that, three little words? Here am I. Here am I, that's right. When he calls, when he tells you what to do, that's all he That's does. right. Okay, so, so far, the Jews are cool with this, right? This is just, this is stuff they know already. Well-known history. So when the author of Hebrews starts out by saying that in the past, God spoke to Israel through the prophets in many different ways and at many different times, you know, that's an easily accepted fact. That is fact number one in the logic statement. Okay? Fact number two is in verse two. And it would be accepted as fact by this audience. The, the second fact that is that in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Stop there. We're going to break verse 2 into two pieces. These are Jewish Christians. Okay, so they already believe in Jesus. So they're willing to accept the fact 
that God has spoken to us in these latter days through his son. Now, what is kind of interesting and you may not realize is the English translation doesn't do this justice here. The actual Greek does not say that God spoke to us by his son, like most of your translations say. What the actual Greek says is God spoke to us in son. You see, God had spoken to these prophets all these years, his message. He spoke to them in every way he knew how, and we didn't get the message. So you know what God sent next? He sent a picture. He sent Jesus. He didn't send words. He sent the word in person, living. And so the Greek actually says that here. God, in these days, God spoke to us in son. So that's fact number two, okay? They've, they can accept that. And then the author goes on to list seven attributes of the son, six or seven, I don't remember how many, but six or seven of the attributes. The first attribute is the, is the end of, of verse two. It says, whom he appointed heir of all things. You can find that in the Old Testament in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, this is Daniel speaking, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, which is a, a title for God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." This is just one of several places in the Old Testament that you can find this prophecy about the Messiah. So it was common knowledge that, that Messiah would be heir of all things and his dominion would never pass away. The very last phrase in verse 2 is the next fact that the writer brings up. And that is through whom, this is through Jesus, God made the universe. Well, first of all, universe here is not limited to the earthly, physical, you know, piece of dirt we're sitting on here. Okay. It, the word, the Greek word is eons. And it means what we take to mean eons for. It means everything created in heaven and earth and in time and space. Okay. So through Jesus, God created the eons. That's an ongoing process. So how did God make the universe? Think back to your Genesis. And God said. Remember that? And God said. He spoke creation into being. He issued his word. Psalm 33, 6. This is another Old Testament. This is in the Old Testament. We're trying to stick there for our proof text as much as possible. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So who is the word? Jesus, of course. And the, new, the early Christians would have known that. Uh, I've got some quotes here for you from John. You recognize them from the beginning of John. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word, this is a capital W word, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. 
and without him was not anything made that was made. And then a little later in that same chapter, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. And if you want to look at other references, there are others. Revelation 19.13 is another reference that we're not going to read today. But definitely the Old Testament is full of references to the creation of the world by God by the word of God and Christians, the Christians and the readers of Hebrews would also have accepted the fact that Jesus was the word personified. And in fact, the Gospel of John was probably written about the same time that Hebrews was. So it is likely that, that, that they had recently read the Gospel of John and discussed it. And also, there's another quote that you uh, might want to look at, and that's John 17, verse 5. And this is where Jesus himself said, while he was on earth, he said he was with God before the world began. So they would have been familiar with this. So just certainly the fact that Jesus was there at creation and through Jesus everything was created was an accepted doctrine in the early Christian church. Okay, so these people would have accepted that. Uh, some other um, references, if you want to jot them down, are 1 Corinthians 8, 6 and Colossians 1, verse 16. So 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Colossians 1, verse 16. So, we'll go on to Hebrews 3. And this is just a continuation of the list that the author is making of the attributes of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Wow. You know, what a, what a perfect and beautiful expression of the essence of Jesus. If you just think about, when we think of radiance, we think of the sun, right? Can the rays of the sun be separated from the sun itself? Can the, can the light of the sun be separated from its rays? The radiance of the sun is the essence of the sun. And that's the same terminology that he's using to describe Jesus in relation to God. He is the radiance of God. He is the essence of God embodied in Jesus. And that didn't really need any proof text to the early Christians. Okay, he he was the light of the world. Right. So this is not something that he, they even needed a proof text for. The next thing the writer of Hebrews says is that Jesus was the exact imprint of the nature of God. A lot of your translations will say that Jesus is the image or likeness of God. Uh, you know, you'll probably have a lot of different versions of this, but the actual Greek word, I think I put it in your uh, scripture references is the word character. It's pronounced like the character. It's from uh, a word that means an engraver, somebody that engraves or stamps a figure. It's the exact image of God. It's the character of God. And this would have been recognized by the early Christians as being true. Jesus said that himself. Bless you. Jesus said that himself in John 5, 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus frequently said, I only, I'm only doing what I see the Father doing. 
Okay, it, He was the exact imprint of the character of God. The writer of Hebrews goes on and names another attribute. Okay, So far we're saying the Jews are nodding their heads up and down saying, yep, 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 I believe that, I believe that. So the next one is that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now that's not something we think of very often. That Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. But this was a recognized doctrine in the early church. Colossians, like John, like the Gospel of John, was written about the same time as Hebrews was. In fact, Colossians was probably written a little bit earlier. And there is a passage in Colossians that actually does a pretty good job of s summarizing these last three points. Look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. And he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The next attribute, and by now I think these Jewish Christians are really thinking hard, okay, because he's hitting a lot of different parts of their early doctrine. The next one is going to be easier. They're going to go, we knew this next one. The next one is, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's one we recognize, right? So certainly any Christian would recognize this because this is the essence of Christianity, and they knew from the Old Testament that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Even Jesus quoted this next um, Old Testament passage. It's from Psalm 110. Jesus himself quoted this during his ministry. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 44. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, and you know they were always trying to trip Jesus up, right? by ask, trying to ask him hard questions, Jesus asked them a question. He said, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, oh really? In that case, why did David himself, in the spirit, call the Messiah Lord? David said, the Lord, that would be God the Father, said to my Lord, that would be the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. And that part that's in capitals there, verse 44, that's the quote from Psalm 110. At that point, the Pharisees shut up because they couldn't answer that question okay, without saying that the Messiah was the Son of God because that's what David said. So far, so good. The Hebrews would have said, yes, yes, yes. Um, they would have been saying, you know, we get it, we get it, get on with your point. So now's time for the zinger. Okay, this is where he's going to get him. What he says in his conclusion to all these facts is in Hebrews, the end of verse 3 and verse 4. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
we, in our modern minds, we would blow right by this because we know Jesus is superior to the angels. This is no big deal to us. But to the early Jewish Christians, this was a great big deal because, you see, they were arguing about whether Jesus outranked the angels or not. And we might think that's ludicrous, but I'm going to show you why it's not ludicrous and why they thought what they thought. And in fact, even if they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, which they really did, it was not an automatic given to them that he was deity. Now, they had been taught that. Jesus himself said he was deity. But Jews as a whole don't believe the Messiah is deity. From the Old Testament, you will not, for one thing, you ask three Jews, you'll get three different answers for who the Messiah is, okay? But, but even today, there is a whole segment of Jews who think there are two messiahs. They think there's one messiah that was the suffering servant who was afflicted and bore our transgressions and rode on the donkey, etc., etc. The suffering servant, and then different messiah who's going to be the victorious conquering king. All right. Now we've got that reconciled in, for, in, as a Christian, we understand how one person can be both things. Okay. We had the first coming and the second coming. But to a Jew, they're out there trying to reconcile these different prophecies. Other Jews reject that entirely, and they believe that Messiah will be, and even some of those Jews from the first part, believe that Messiah will be fully human. He will come, he will establish the, the God's reign on earth, and he will die and pass his kingship down to his heirs forever. Okay? That's how they read those Old Testament prophecies. And there's even a very widespread notion that there is a Messiah in every generation. You'll get all kind of different notions, and that's what the writer of Hebrews was dealing with. These are Jews, and they like to argue about stuff like that. So they're having a discussion. Is Jesus better? If Jesus is the Messiah, is he better than the angels? Well, to understand this mindset, first we have to get rid of our preconceived notion of angels. When we think of angels, what do we always see? We see Caucasian women with big fluffy wings and blonde hair, right? <laughs> and I'm not saying everybody in the world sees that, but that's the image we see. It's painted in our churches. It's put in our Bibles. It's the image on the front of the funeral pamphlets, right? Okay. Um, this is so unscriptural, you wouldn't believe. For one thing, there is no female angel anywhere in the Bible at all. There is never an angel referred to as her. They are always masculine. And when they appear to men, they appear as men. They do not have big fluffy wings. They don't look strange. They look ordinary. Now, there is some power about them that men figure out pretty quickly. If they can't tell right away, they fi figure out very quickly that it is an angel. But, but in physical appearance, they look like men. I've got you some references for this. Genesis 18, first, first few verses. This is a story about Abraham. Abraham is sitting. You can read along. I'm just going to kind of tell you the story. But Abraham is sitting under a tree. 
And, you know, he was like a nomad, right? He just lived in tents. He has his herds and, and everything. And in the distance, he sees three men coming towards him. But he recognizes that these are special men, not, not because they have wings, but because Abraham is in tune with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? So he looks, he lifts up his eyes, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So the three men accept his invitation and they sit down to have a meal with him. And Abraham makes them some, some dinner and he does not even sit down to eat with them. Out of respect, he stands a little distance away like a servant while these men ate. And pretty soon they say to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham says, well, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, ah, right there we see that one of those men was the Lord. Okay. Now you know that nobody can see the face of the Lord and live, right? So this is an, what you would call an angel of the Lord. Okay. This is a representation of the Lord, a physical representation. This is somebody who looks just like a man, but he's speaking as the Lord. So the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah is listening, and you remember what she did. She snickered, remember? That's why they had to name him uh, Isaac, meaning he laughs. Um, then in verse 18, the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So that means two of the angels went and the angel of the Lord stayed with Abraham. Okay, so the three guys split up. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? See, Abraham knew that he had a relative living there. And so this is where he went through the whole bargaining thing with the Lord. If you find 50 good men, if you find 40, if you find 30, if you find 10, and the Lord says, enough already. If I find 10, I'll leave the city standing. And of course, he did not find 10 righteous men. So uh, verse 33, and the Lord went his way when he finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. And the very next verse says the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot, who is Abraham's relative, was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. So do the math. Three men started out. Three men ate with Abraham. Two went on to Sodom, right? The two angels went to Sodom. And, and the Lord spoke with Abraham for a while and just went on his own way. These are angels in the company of the Lord. You know, no wonder the Jews held angels in high esteem. Because from a physical point of view, it was almost, it was apparently very difficult to distinguish between the angel of the Lord and a regular angel, right? This is how they look in physical form, but their spiritual reality of an angel is very different. The spiritual reality of an angel, though, Human-like, we would never mistake for a human being. Look at Daniel 10, verses 5 through 7. Daniel sees a vision, the spiritual reality of an angel. 
I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. That's a picture of the spiritual reality of an angel. And those of you familiar with the story of Balaam that I uh, alluded to, it's in uh, Numbers 22, verses 21 through 35. Remember, Balaam got on his donkey to go give those prophecies and an angel of the Lord stood in the road and the donkey could see the spiritual reality that Balaam, the man, could not see. That donkey wasn't going to go any further (laughs) because what he saw was like what Daniel saw. He saw an angel in its real spiritual form with his sword drawn and that angel wasn't going anywhere. I mean, that donkey wasn't going anywhere. So according to scripture, this is something you may not know about angels. Angels have names and they have specific scopes of authority and they even, some of them have geographic assignments. And not all angels are good angels. Some of them, of course, are fallen angels. Let's look at some interesting scriptures. Look at Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So you see, angels have positions of authority, homes or places where they are supposed to stand and function. Look at Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. So you see, Michael, of course, we recognize as an angel. And this is telling you that that he is a prince among angels. You see, there are hierarchies of angels. And we call them archangels, right? Okay. So so Michael is an archangel like Gabriel is an archangel. Okay. And in in verse Daniel 10 verse 12, he continues. And this is the angel. This is a continuation of that one uh, that we read a little earlier where it was the the flaming, you know, eyes like lightning angel, the the spiritual vision of the angel. He continued. Daniel of course fell on the ground. He's scared to death. And and the angel says, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, your prayer was heard, and I have come in response to them. But you know what? That was three weeks ago. And so the angel explains to him why he's three weeks late getting here to answer Daniel's prayer. He says, I came in response, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. You see, Daniel was living in Persia at the time. And that angel was prevented from getting to Daniel by the spiritual power called the prince of the Persian kingdom, which, which is an angel or archangel of the Persian kingdom. It's not a physical prince. He's talking about a spiritual prince that is battling and keeping him from getting there. 
Okay, so in this case, certainly, it appears that the spirit, that the angel over Persia was one of the fallen angels because he's fighting to keep Michael from getting to Daniel. Then, my, I mean, fighting to keep this angel, it wasn't Michael, fighting to keep this angel that, that Daniel saw from getting to Daniel. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the archangels, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And, and with Michael's help, those two angels were able to overcome the angel that was the prince over Persia. And now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. And he goes on a little later in that same chapter and, he, and the angel says, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. And as you know from our study of Daniel, remember the sequence of the kingdoms that, that took over that part of the world? We had Persia first and then Greece came. This is, this is what he's alluding to. So the, the events in the world, the physical events, are mirroring the spiritual reality that's happening in the heavenly realms. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. This is the angel speaking. So isn't this fascinating? Just a glimpse into what the angels do. Now, skipping on to the, the New Testament in Ephesians 6, verse 12, this still has applicability to us as Christians. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see? That's another allusion to the fact that there is good and evil powers and authorities in the spiritual realm. And we, the, the reality of what we are doing as Christians when we take a stand as Christians is we are combating that evil. First Peter 3, verse 21, it, it's talking about baptism here, saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone to, into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Okay? Those would be the heavenly hosts described in scripture. Okay? As a collective whole, the angels, the authorities, and the powers okay, are described as heavenly hosts. And in our Daniel study, we already looked at the scriptural background for the term heavenly hosts or hosts of heaven. But for those of you who weren't in our Daniel class, I gave you a handout titled Host of Heaven. We're not going to go over it today, but I would encourage you to read through that carefully because it gives you some more really interesting scripture about the heavenly hosts. So, back to angels. To get a feel for what, why a Jew might think about angels in the way they do, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. All right? This verbal pop quiz. And this is one that I heard uh, Stephen Armstrong do. He's another Bible teacher. I thought it was a great pop quiz. All right. I didn't give you the scripture references, so you can't cheat on this one. <laughs> now, just holler out what you think here. Genesis 12, verse 1. Abram is told to leave his homeland and travel to a new unspecified land. Who told him that, God or an angel? 
Right, God. Genesis 21, verse 17. Hagar and Ishmael are literally dying of thirst in the desert after they've run away from home because Sarah was abusing them. Remember that? Who answers Hagar's prayer of desperation? Angel. angel. It's actually called the angel of God. So it's like that one we read about with Abraham where one of them was the angel of the Lord. Okay. But an angel, the word angel, nevertheless. Okay. And a Jew is hearing angel here. Genesis 22, verse 1. Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac. God. That's right. Genesis 22:11. Abraham is told to stop the sacrifice. Angel. Woo, y'all are good. <laughs> y'all are better than I was. <laughs> I got them all wrong. <laughs> all of this? Our Sunday school is studying Genesis right now. Oh, okay. Well, that explains at least half of you, but half of you are Methodists, so I'm not sure what's going on. <laughs> All right, Genesis 31, verse 10 through 13. Jacob is told that even though Laban tries to cheat him by giving him the worst livestock, remember all the spotted and speckled ones? God is going to make sure that the trick would backfire on Laban. Who told Jacob this, an angel or God? It's an angel of God who identified himself as God. Ex but still, angel, you see how closely that's linked? Exodus 3, verse 2 through 4. Who spoke to Moses from the burning bush? God. <laughs> it was an angel of the Lord who identified himself as God. Uh, the question was, angel of the Lord, is that a theophany? Theophany simply is a word meaning visual representation of God, a, a vision of God. By definition, yes, it would be a theophany. Okay, because you can, another word people use is Christophany. Okay, some people say, well, it's not God, it's really they're seeing Christ just in his pre-incarnate form. Okay, I don't care what you call it, to the Jew, they heard angel. Okay, but it, like the same thing. it does, doesn't it sound like the same thing? So I'm I'm not going to make any judgment here. I'm, I'm giving you the evidence. I'm going to let you figure that part out. <laughs> so I'm going to let you go home and look it up. But but the point is that when God wants to appear to man in a physical way, he appears as an angel who looks like a man. OK, accepting special cases like this burning bush. Right. Okay, or the pillar of fire, or the pillar of cloud, okay? There are other forms he can take. Two more. Exodus 14, verse 19. The pillar of cloud that protected the fleeing Israelites from the Egyptian army. Was that God or an angel? angel. It was an angel. I did. <laughs> Good thing, huh? <laughs> and the last one, Daniel 6, verse 22. Who protected Daniel in the lion's den? It was an angel. Okay. So no wonder there was controversy among the Christian Hebrews as to whether Jesus outranked angels or not. You see why there would be confusion? There were obviously many of the Hebrew Christians who were in danger of thinking that Jesus was not deity at all, but that he was an angel like Michael or Gabriel. They were kind of falling away from the 
They were talking themselves out of believing that he was deity. Okay, you know what that talking yourself out of? That's called apostasy. <laughs> that's falling away. Okay, and this is why one of the reasons why he the guy wrote Hebrews in the first place is to address this. So the writer of Hebrews has reminded them through all those verses we went through at the very first of the class, the, all these ones we've just gone through. He's reminding them of the deity of the Son of God. And as we've seen, the early Christians, you would have had no problem saying yes, 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 yes. Okay? But now he's gotten to the zinger. And now he's going to prove to them that Jesus outranks the angels. And we're going to stop there and pick up next week.